Well, our guest this week on the OHL podcast is probably the most familiar name we've ever had on this podcast. <laughs> he was a Toronto Maple Leafs goaltender back in the 1980s, incredibly well-known with my personal favorite NHL team, and I know many of yours as well. But here's the thing about Alan Vester. Before he was a Maple Leaf, he was a Brantford Alexander. Before he was a Brantford Alexander, he was a Hamilton Husky, and he's in their Hall of Fame. So much to talk about with our guest, Mr. Alan Vester, who makes time for us. Thank you so much. It's great to have you on the show. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Let's start with the Hamilton Huskies. Oh, wait. No, even before that, let's get this rip this Band-Aid off, because you and I have chatted multiple times getting this set up, and every time we do, I get a little chirp from your way. Oh, the weather is so hot here in Florida. <laughs> On the day we're recording this, Alan, I had to dust my car off from about two or three centimeters of overnight snow. Go ahead. Let's hear it. How is it in Florida today? It was a little overcast today, but it was only 75, 76, you know, Fahrenheit, probably 20, 24, 25 Celsius. Yeah. So you're telling me the NHL life leads to a pretty damn good life period, eh? Yes. My my 15-year career landed me in Florida, and I decided to become a full-time Floridian, so... Is it off-putting at all? It was not planned. This is always my uh, Zoom call YouTube backdrop. But this guy up here is a fellow by the name of Mike Palmatier. I did a mm -hmm. card show with him, I don't know how long ago, and he signed a picture to me as a thank you for helping out in his booth. But uh, Palmatier, Bester on the same show here. Yes, yes. Mike Palmatier is a great guy. I really enjoyed my short time with him. I uh, would like to have it been longer, but uh, Toronto made a decision to to get him uh, to uh, cut him loose. So, but it would have been great to work with Palmy. Let's focus on uh, some of the early days, Alan. I mentioned that Hamilton Huskies Hall of Fame. First of all, they never take away recognition like that. How does it feel to be in that Hall of Fame? Well, I was I was very honored to be selected. Um, I flew up and. I played in a golf tournament and uh, did a uh, banquet with uh, other honorees that night and had a great time. And it's a great organization. I'm glad they're still doing well and, and producing great hockey players. Did that experience with the Huskies in any way prepare you for your experience with the Toronto Maple Leafs in terms of, I hear you were hurt, you were facing like 70 shots a game with the Huskies. Well, not so much with the Huskies. We had a pretty good team uh, my first year there. We went, we won the basically all Ontario uh, championship my first year with the Huskies, <clears throat> and then the second year um, it was it was a lot of tournaments and things like that, and played played well, I guess. Um, I was totally unprepared for being drafted to Brantford. Um, my coach called me to tell me that I had been drafted to the Brantford Alexanders, and I didn't even know. I had no idea. So. Um, it was kind of a surprise and, and, and start of a great, a great career. What was it that got you between the pipes in the first place? Why a goalie? Well, being the youngest of eight kids, first of all, um, you know, they stuck me in net and shot pucks at me. Um, so I had four older brothers that, uh, you know, you, you stick the little brother in net and shoot at him. So that's kind of where everything started. You know, I had a great support system at home, and and uh, then when I started playing street hockey, I just was the goaltender. I had the reflexes and the, the speed, and uh, that's where it all started. 
Yeah, those reflexes were absolutely a calling card of the Alan Bester. I think we all remember from his time in goal. So if you weren't ready and you were caught so off guard by being drafted to the Brampton or the Brantford, pardon me, Alexanders, what was it like when you first set foot on OHL ice to play in that league? Uh, that was, it was great. I, I went into training camp as uh, the, the top goaltender that they had chosen for that year. The other two uh, goaltenders that were taken ahead of me, which was Tom Barrasso and uh, Frank Pietrangelo, both of them decided not to come to Brantford. So I was the top selection for the goaltender and we had nobody coming back from previous years. So I was uh, put in net and every day, there seemed to be five new goaltenders come and try out and then they'd all be cut and then another five would come in. So um, I ended up lasting the whole time through training camp. Um, you know, back then I just played, I didn't worry about it. I didn't, uh, you know, I just tried to do the best I could. Uh, I was hoping to get my education from, uh, from playing junior hockey. That was my, my biggest thing was to get my education and, uh, it wasn't until after my first year that I kind of decided, you know, I'm going to set some goals for myself. And I did that summer and things worked out. Okay. I'm going to come back to those goals in just a second, but you mentioned the importance that you even knew then, which I think is admirable that an education is something that you wanted to get out of this Ontario hockey league experience. And we talk often about the student athletes that still play the game. Obviously you go to school, you play hockey, hopefully you move on, get that education package, et cetera, et cetera. Who gets a 99 in high school science, Alan? <laughs> Boy, you did your homework. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I was, uh, I did a hundred percent in physics and 98% in biology. You split it half and half. So yeah, I, I really, uh, like my sciences and my maths. Um, I, I was a good student. It, it did not, it came very easy to me um, when I, when, during that science class, um, I would never study, but what I would do is go to the cafeteria and explain the class to people that were struggling and kind of go over what he went over in the class to help them understand it from, from a, a kind of a layman's uh, perspective and try to get them to understand what he was talking about. And I was very, Felt very rewarded when a bunch of them that passed that would not have passed ended up passing science that year. So it was uh, it was a, a good learning experience for me. Where were you when I needed you? I'm in radio <laughs> strictly for the no math required policies here. Come on. <laughs> Did it ever occur to you? I mean, we know that hockey worked out, obviously, but that maybe teaching, like just based on that short story, that teaching might have been something you would have considered doing. Absolutely. That was something that was uh, possible in my, uh, my future. Um, broadcasting was another one. Uh, it was a few things that uh, I thought possibly um, I could get into, but uh, it was something definitely in the sciences and the maths. That was uh, what I was gearing myself to. And as a, a very young child, I was always wanted to be a marine biologist. That seemed to be uh, where I wanted to do. Um, and later in life, I ended up doing a lot of scuba diving and enjoyed that. So, um, you know, it comes full circle. Absolutely amazing. And when I hear, I'm sorry, but when I hear marine biologist, 
all I can think of is the Seinfeld reference, right? Is anybody here a marine biologist? <laughs> <laughs> you could have yes. been the George Costanza, but the real one. <laughs> absolutely absolutely okay i said we would come back to those goals that you had set for yourself and you very modestly said i set some goals i came back and everything worked out but it's not quite that simple what were those goals well after my first year i didn't play a lot i played probably about 20 games got a very um i sat behind uh darren kossar who was a third year goaltender that we traded for and um I got, I decided that summer that I was going to be the number one goaltender in the league. I was going to have the lowest goals against average. I was going to make the all-star team and I was going to get drafted. That was the four things that I kind of prepared myself for. So the next year I was the number one goaltender coming in and all four of those things ended up happening. What kind of work did you do? to move yourself towards those goals? Well, I played a lot of summer hockey, you know, that was, that was the main thing. Um, and it, it, was, it was just kind of basically setting my mind to it and, and wanting to be the best I could be and uh, be the best I could for my team. When you were a member of the Brantford Alexanders, you had a billet brother that everybody listening to this podcast will also recognize the name of, Bob Probert. How did Alan Bester end up as a billet brother to Bob Probert? Well, my first year I was with uh, Grant Anderson and uh, him and I got along really well. And the following year, um, Dave Draper, our coach, general manager, um, wanted a positive influence for Bob because he had just lost his father in the line of duty. And um, so he put Bob with me because I was a good student um, I had a car. I was always punctual. I, I had um, a very solid base to me. So uh, I, he put Bob with me to help help him get him to school, get him to practice, keep him kind of on the straight and narrow. To whom do you credit that solid base? Is it family, Alan? Oh, it's absolutely family. Um, you know, I had a very loving, uh, supportive family who were um, I, the sister closest to me is seven years older, and then the other six were 10 to 20 years older. So I spent a lot of time with them uh, when my dad was working, you know, double shifts, and he was a train engineer for THNB Railway, and um, he was working a lot. You know, I, it's like I had seven parents, nine parents. Um, they would take me fishing. They would do uh, do different events with me, take me on on trips and things like that, so uh, it was great to have that support at home. With a blue-collar background like that, and I mean, Hamilton, too, it doesn't get much more blue-collar than that. What was it like being the guy that got paid to play a game? I don't mean to diminish the work I know that goes into it, especially to reach the levels that you did, but was it a little bit odd in the family? Um, I don't know if it was odd. Um, I think they were just happy for me, and and it was a natural progression. Um me coming through, uh, you know, Midget and the Huskies and Brantford and moving on to the NHL. Um, I think it was uh, a little shocking for them to be recognized as the brother or sister of Alan Bester rather than the other way around. Um, you know, my brother used to get it at work all the time. Oh, you're, you're Alan Bester's brother. No, he's my brother. 
<laughs> so, um, you know, it was enjoyable. You know, they got to see games and got to, to spend time. It's funny. I tease my sister about that to this day, Alan. I'm the older one, yet everybody always asks me, oh, you're Pam's brother? No, no. No, no. She's my little sister. Keep it straight here. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Back to Bob Probert for just a moment, because the name is so well known. Was there any of the Bob Probert billet brother in Brantford starting to emerge as the Bob Probert we would have come to know in his National Hockey League days? Um, Bob, from a hockey standpoint, was amazingly talented for what he did. And for his size, um, he, he surprised me on, on how good he was on the ice with stick handling. And, and you know, he would, he would shrug off two or three checks to, to get the puck to the net. Um, he was very surprising and, and uh, the enforcer type of Bob didn't really come out a lot in junior as, as it did in the NHL. Um, there were some issues with Bob off the ice um, later on. Um, the third year I decided to live somewhere else. Um, I, I didn't want to be the babysitter anymore. I'd had enough of that. So the third year I lived with another family. And you had a career to focus on, too. That's just the reality of this. Absolutely. What do you remember of the Ontario Hockey League back then? One of the reasons that this conversation was precipitated is because Brantford, at least temporarily, is going to have a team back in the Ontario Hockey League. I remember watching the Alexanders when I was growing up in Kitchener. What was the league like for a goalie back then? Uh, it was uh, very um, offense-oriented, um, you know, from the... Peterborough Peets and the Kitchener Rangers, you know, players like Al McGinnis and uh, Tucker, um, you know, and then you had, um, oh gosh, I'm drawing a blank on his name, uh, from the Peterborough Peets, um, you know, Bob Airy and, and a bunch of the guys there that uh, um, were high scoring players, and just very offensive oriented. And uh, it was a, a great league. I, you know, I thoroughly enjoyed my time in Brantford. What was draft day to the NHL like for you? Well, um, my dad uh, and I went to Montreal for the draft, and I went with uh, my agent, uh, Don Meehan, at the time. And, um, you know, it was, was interesting sitting there and seeing everything happen in Montreal Forum. And, and uh, when they announced in the second round, selected from the Brantford Alexanders, I was like, wow, okay. And it was Bob Prober. <laughs> and then it was Jeff Jackson. <laughs> and then they came around to the third round. It was Alan Bester. So, um, you know, uh, it was it was great. You know, as I'm walking to the Toronto table to visit with them, uh, Pittsburgh Penguins, uh, Eddie Johnston came over and said, you are our next pick if, if Toronto didn't take you. So, um, you know, it was it was surreal. I mean, it was an amazing event, amazing time, you know, and the start of a start of everything for me. Do you ever look back, not that things turned out poorly by any stretch, but do you ever look back and say, what if, or wonder what if you had slipped one more and Pittsburgh would have taken you? Well, you know, people often said, you know, well, you know, what if you'd been on a better team? Well, I may never have gotten the shot. I may never have gotten the chance to play. You know, everything fell fell into place when I went to Toronto, um, with Palmatier being hurt, um, with the team not doing as well as they had liked to, 
um, you know, and me and Kenny Reggett coming in and playing a few games. And then they called me up to play a few games. The fans taking an instant like to me, um, playing well when I came up. Then when they sent me back to junior, um, Harold Ballard said, the fans want Bester back. We're not going anywhere. Bring him back. So that may never, never have happened if I went to a team that had solid goaltending and I may have languished in the minors for a few years and went, you know what, I'm, I've had enough of this. I'm going to call it quits. You know, you, you never know um, who's to say I would have gotten a shot somewhere else. Yeah, you could have just decided to be a science teacher instead by that. Exactly. Point. Exactly. <laughs> like my like my like my science teacher Benny Irachi from grade 10. Yes. Still remember. That's fantastic. <laughs> oh, yeah. Mr. Thompson was my high school science teacher. He used to leave the classroom. He would dictate all of his lessons, which was a little bit weird for high school. He would leave the classroom mid-sentence and come back in and pick up right where he left off. <laughs> I don't know where he went, Alan, but he and sometimes he'd come back in walking on his hands. Go figure. Maybe that's why I didn't do so well in science. My science teacher didn't know anything. <laughs> anyway, that's that's a complete tangent. When you ended up playing, because Harold Ballard listened to the fans who wanted Alan Bester, you were just 19 years old, which had to be intimidating as all get out. I, I want to get to that in a moment, but if we can take half a step back to that draft at the Montreal Forum, for you, that must have been, certainly at that time, the the cherry on top of the Sunday because you grew up a Habs fan and mm -hmm. with Ken Dryden as your hero. I don't think it could mm -hmm. have come together any better for you at that moment. Absolutely. I, um, it was, uh, it was nice to be in the shrine in the old Montreal forum and, and, and experiencing that from a, from a, uh, from a in-house perspective rather than watching it on TV. Um, you know, I, I always thought, you know, I want to be drafted by Montreal, but I was quite glad I went to Toronto instead. It was great. How did it work out growing up? If I'm not mistaken, your dad was a Leafs fan, yes? Yeah, and you have done your homework. Yes, you have. My dad was a Leafs fan. I was a Montreal Canadian fan. We fought like cat and dog every Saturday night. Um, yeah, and uh, one of his best friends, uh, Bill Payton, uh, was also a Montreal Canadian fan. And when I was younger, we would have a bet every Montreal game. And if Montreal won, I got 10 cents. So I ended up, I think Montreal lost a total of nine games that year. So I ended up with a jar full of 10, jar full of 10 dimes. Yeah. I had uh, friends in high school while you were playing for the Leafs who were Habs fans. We had similar things going on and well, next thing you know, I'm kind of broke too by the end of it. Cause I was the Leafs <laughs> fan there. Uh, not, not, nothing against you. You didn't have, it wasn't your fault, Alan, as I'm sure you know. Um, do you remember your first start against the Habs? Yes, yes. Um, in Montreal Forum, um, we uh, we ended up winning the game. Guy Lafleur came down the le my left side and shot low right stick side. I butterfly made the save, pulled it in, covered it up. He skated by, gave me a little pat in the pads, and went on his way. So, um, one of my fresh memories of uh, of playing in Montreal Forum. That must be one of those moments where you realize you have absolutely made it when the flower is going to give you the little tap on the pad saying, nice job, kid. Nice save on that one. Yeah. Um, didn't feel like I'd made it at that time. I was still, you know, fighting for the job to try and stay there and, and, and prove I was 
worthy of being in the NHL. Uh, you know, there was a lot of that for the first few years that I played, uh, where, you know, you went in every night going, you know, tonight I have to play well if I want to stick around. How difficult did that make it with your goaltending partner, Ken Reagan? both 19 years old and fighting for the same job and you are pitted against each other from an organizational standpoint it was tough um, plus my personality at the time being uh, having an anxiety disorder made it even tougher because I would be when I get nervous I talk a lot and that's where I became chatty um, so it, it it was tough to to mold together as, as a, a tandem. Like I said, I, it would have been better for me personally <clears throat> if Palmateer had stayed. And that's what Palmateer had said to me during training camp. He goes, it's going to be you and me. You're going to play the majority of games. I'll spill you every once in a while and we'll work together. And so that would have been great for me to have a veteran goaltender to, to, to lean upon. You haven't shied away from talking about your anxiety disorder. Did you know then Alan, had it been diagnosed at that time, or is that you looking back in hindsight? I, I didn't I didn't recognize it until well after I retired, uh, or to at least the year after I retired that I realized that uh, um, this it was it wasn't just being nervous about playing. It was a lot more than that. And I think a lot of the physical workout kept it under check a little bit more. So when I did retire, it became even worse. And that's when I got diagnosed and, and, and got finally got the right medication where I could enjoy life again. So is that to say then that you're so busy and trying to keep your job in the pros is so all-consuming that you almost don't have time to deal properly with your anxiety disorder? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, you know, and, and I didn't realize that it wasn't normal to be this uptight and, and, and tense and, and worried about failing. And, you know, um, you know, I think back now at times when I was a kid laying in bed at night, terrified about learning to drive, terrified about learning, going to high school and, and ha basically having panic attacks and, you know, didn't realize that was a symptom. I can't imagine how much more difficult that would have made playing in the National Hockey League. I, I truly can't because that's got, that's enough of a pressure cooker all on its own. It was tough. It was tough. And, and, and especially towards the end of my career when I wasn't at a hundred percent and trying to still perform every night, knowing that physically didn't have it. Um, you know, I would, lay awake at night all night worrying about the game tomorrow night you know um it, it that's that's the reason why i retired at 35 i could have played probably four or five more years but i couldn't take it anymore so at the age of 19 when harold ballard says this is our guy bring him up the team's not going anywhere anyway what's that like how intimidating was that for you as a 19 year old 
well, I had nothing to lose. You know, I, I, I was in a situation where, hey, just do the best you can and let the chips fall where they may. You know, it was uh, it was not a situation where there was any expectations on my shoulders. It was, hey, it's a 19 year old kid right out of junior, you know, we'll see how he does. And um, it turned out great. I mean, the fans took to me, supported me, players supported me. It was, it was, uh, it was a good situation for me. You talk about those fans, Alan, and as a Leafs fan, um, I, I know how difficult fans can be sometimes particularly in that fishbowl that is Toronto what was it like back then way before social media but in terms of the pressure that you felt the media attention that was there what was it like in Toronto then well I mean you had three or four papers that had to have a story every day on the Leafs and 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 uh, again in the beginning it was all positive it wasn't until I was there four or five years where um, maybe a coach would uh, blame you for uh, certain plays that it became a little more tense. Um, but early in my career, it was, it was, everything was positive. You know, I was just doing the best I could. Um, you know, we didn't have the, the horses at the time, or we didn't have the right chemistry at the time. <clears throat> and uh, it wasn't until a little later on that we started putting it together when we had Wendell and, and Mark Osborne and, Eddie Olchuk and Gary Lehman, you know, and things started to come together that the scrutiny became a little more intense. You mentioned a guy like Wendell Clark, who to this day will be regarded as one of the, if not the absolute best to ever put on a Toronto Maple Leafs jersey. What was it like watching him as a teammate? Well, he was a, he was a great guy. I mean, he was, he was, <clears throat> he was a total team guy. Um, he thoroughly believed in leading the team by example. Uh, I have the utmost respect for Wendell. I mean, he he walked the walk, he talked the talk. You know, he he did it, and a lot of time he did it while he was injured and and struggled through injuries while you know sacrificing his body for the team. You were with the Leafs, Allen, at what might be described as the the peak of the, the Harold Ballard era when things just weren't going well at all on the ice, there was all kinds of turmoil. Did that affect you as a player? No, no. Um, I had a job to do and the job was to give my team a chance to win. And so really what went on off the ice didn't affect me at all. Um, actually I liked Mr. Ballard a lot. Um, Mr. Ballard, couple things um he my brother passed away when I was with Toronto and they had the funeral in Ancaster and while I was there the car pulls up and King Clancy and Harold Ballard get out and attend my brother's funeral um meant so much to me for him to um, take the time out of his day to come pay his respects to him to my brother on my behalf. I, I total respect for him for that. And uh, then one night he called me into his bunker and I ended up sitting in the bunker with him one night. You know, I didn't want to, but I had to, since he asked me, 
you know, he kept saying, come sit up here up, up front. No, no, I'll sit way back here in the back where the guys can't see me. <laughs> <laughs> so for, for the next month, they called me King Clancy. Um, <laughs> and um, then another night, uh, I'm walking into the arena in Minnesota and Mr. Ballard, who had diabetes and severely had burnt his feet badly with hot water bottles, um, or was being treated in the, in the training room. <clears throat> and I walked by and he goes, Hey, Bester. I said, yes, sir. He said, uh, I can get you a ride at Greenwood tomorrow, tomorrow night. I said, uh, Mr. Bell, you better be nice to me. He goes, what? I said, you better be nice to me. I'll ruin your reputation and tell everyone you're a nice guy. So I had a good time with Mr. Bell. He was a good, he was a good guy. Minnesota. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, that was the site of your first NHL start. Yes. Correct. Correct. What was that moment like for you against the North stars? Well, they didn't tell me until right before the game that I was starting. So he didn't want me to panic the night before. So he didn't, I think he told me after morning practice that I was actually playing that night. So, um, you know, that was many years ago now. <laughs> <laughs> So it's hard to recall a lot of things except um, actually playing. And I think we lost four to three or three to two. Um, I got second star of the game, which was was, was pretty cool. Um, you know, I played pretty well. We didn't win, which that's something I would have liked to have happened. But uh, you know, it was uh, it was it was a start of something good for me. It certainly was because didn't you end up making like twenty five straight starts to end that season? Yes, I did. Yeah. Um, played uh, 32 out of a possible 36 games that I was there for and, and played 25 in a row to finish the season. Do you enjoy that kind of workload? Like, is it is it somewhat reassuring to know, OK, next night it's just going to be you again? Especially later in my career when I was established as an number one guy and I expected to play every night, it was much easier than playing one, sitting three, playing two, sitting three, um, which happened a lot in Toronto after my first year. When you're, when you're playing every night, it's, it's just a rhythm and you expect to play and you know how to prepare during the, the, the morning skate and, and be ready for the game that night. So <clears throat> I, I liked the fact that I, I had a heavy workload and I did later in my career when I played in the minors for um, San Diego and Orlando, I would play extensive period, uh, extensive, streaks we talked earlier about ken dryden who was your goaltending hero another legendary name in goaltending is jerry cheevers and if i'm not mistaken you somehow got jerry cheevers fired how did you do that alan bester um when i was 19 or 20 the first year in toronto we played uh boston back to back a home and home series um first night we beat boston i had 49 shots on goal and we end up beating Boston. Then we went back to Boston Arena and played them that in their arena. And I had 53 shots that night. And we ended up beating them that night. So later on, a year or so later or whatever, we're in Hartford. And Jerry Cheevers is the play-by-play -play announcer for the Hartford Whalers. I run into him, say hello. He told me that uh, he called me uh, a not kind name and said I got him fired because he lost back-to-back -back games to Toronto back when we were, were very good. So, and it was my fault. <laughs> of course it was your fault. He's got to blame somebody at that point, yeah, exactly. right? <laughs> exactly. Your um, 
your NHL rookie card, I think, should be worth an absolute fortune because there's a real, is it an oddity that we could call attached to it? Yes, um, my rookie card is, my picture's on the bottom corner, but the picture that is on the card is actually Rick St. Croix. <laughs> okay. Because so, they took the pictures in Washington, from what I understand, and I never played in Washington my first year. They had already played there, so... Rick St. Croix's picture is on my rookie card. It's got to be worth a fortune, Alan, isn't it? Or Yeah, about 25 cents. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. There was another teammate that you had uh, in Toronto uh, whose, sadly, story is somewhat similar to Ultimate Story, similar to Bob Probert's. But did, did John Cordick actually, like, deck you at a team dinner? Yes. Um, we were sitting around having dinner and kind of telling jokes and whatever. And, and I made a comment, um, kind of a funny comment about John, uh, which he took personally because it had more meaning than I knew about. And uh, he just swatted me and knocked me off my chair. Um, yeah. Yeah. So the next day I walked into the dressing room and it was a chalk outline of me on the floor in front of my stall. <laughs> so does that mean at least there could be some laugh about it afterwards kind of thing or? Oh yeah. Yeah. It yeah. was, you know, John and I talked about it and he thought I was making fun of him based on a personal situation that he was going through, which I had no idea. I guess he had a fiance that they had broken up and my comment was not in reference to that, but in reference to something else. And he took it personally. That's, that's what ended up happening. So. Um, Back then, were, were you able to keep the media out of that or did they get a hold of the story? Cre oh, of you course know, they got a hold oh. of it. I mean, <laughs> the damn media. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. They got a hold of it and they played it up and yeah, it was no big deal. What was it like when the news came that you had been traded? Well, I got the call when I was in Newmarket, uh, ready to ready to play the Adirondack Red Wings that night. And uh, I was told that I had a phone call from uh, from the general manager, Floyd, I think it was Floyd Smith at the time. So I got on the phone and they said, Alan, we traded you to Detroit. Uh, they'll expect you to to pack up and be there tomorrow or whatever. And there'll be a plane ticket here and all that information. I said, okay, great. I said, I guess I'll have to have that leaf tattoo burned off my butt now. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. And I told the coach of the, the uh, new market saints at the time. And he said, you're not playing against us tonight. Are you? I said, no, no, I'm going to Detroit. Sorry. <laughs> What did uh, Steve Eiserman have to do with that trade? Um, really, I don't think Steve had anything to do with it. It was uh, the the uh, owner was uh, didn't want me to be traded to or get picked up by uh, Minnesota North Stars, the Chicago Blackhawks, uh, a rival in the in the uh, Norris Division. Um, I had a reputation as a wing killer. Uh, I played really well against Detroit, either in Toronto or in Detroit. Um, and uh, I think the majority of my wins of the, of the few that I did have um, were against Detroit. So 
their owner, Mike Illich, said uh, we don't want him going anywhere else in the Norris division, <clears throat> trade for him and bring him into Detroit. Way to put on the performances that worked out for you in the end, because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with Adirondack, that's where you were able to win a Calder Cup. Yes. Um, so I finished the year in Detroit. That's that's when uh, um, my other brother passed away. And then uh, after that, uh, the following year, I was there till about Christmas time in Detroit and then got sent down to Adirondack for conditioning because I wasn't playing a lot. Well, come to find out I was there for the rest of the year, um, which, which was really great for my career because I got um, working with Barry Melrose as my coach. Um, Barry was very much a positive influence. Um, he knew how to motivate individuals rather than the whole team. He would knew how to, motivate into each individual based on what they needed. And uh, it was, it was great to have Barry as a coach and we ended up going through the playoffs and winning the color cup and beating the Leafs farm system in the final. Um, and an interesting fact, which you probably know is that it went seven games. No one won a home game. All the, all the wins were road games for that uh, seven game series. I confess I did not know that one, but thank you. Now I'm going to remember it. I'm going to use it and say, did you know in the 92 and the 92 Calder Cup, uh, it must have been so satisfying for you to beat the Leafs organization in that final. I remember looking up after the game and kind of waving to the brass up there saying, hi, guys. Yeah, I was the guy you got rid of. Yeah, yeah. And this is the MVP trophy that I'm holding, you know. <laughs> so uh, it was very satisfying, um, but it was for people that don't play a sport, it's hard to describe what a culmination of all the work, blood, sweat, and tears a group puts in together to accomplish something of this magnitude. I mean, there, there's no, nothing else in life that compares to it when you have a team pull together and end up accomplishing a championship. It's, it's, it's an amazing feeling. The MVP award, the Calder Cup ring, are they around anywhere? Do they have a nice prominent place on a mantle? Very nice. Showing it on the YouTube screen. Very prominent. I on my finger every day when I go to work. That's beautiful. <laughs> That's beautiful. The, um, the uh, MVP trophy is tarnished black and sitting in a closet somewhere. But uh, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it doesn't, I, I don't display a lot in my house. Um, I've got a very large picture from the NHL Players Association uh, recognizing my career, and that is hanging in the house, and that's probably about it. And then my three masks are um, sitting prominently uh, in the in the family room in the in the living room, which is kind of the man cave for me. <laughs> you mentioned Barry Melrose and what he meant to you as a player when he was your coach what made Barry such a special coach such a coach you could connect with well you know I was I was struggling at the time I'd gone to Detroit expecting to take over the number one spot within a short period of time I thought you know this is my chance to to play again you know Toronto just kind of discarded me 
So I went to Detroit thinking, you know, here's my chance. Well, I ended up playing three games for them and uh, didn't, didn't turn out the way I expected. And then I get sent to the mine. Then I sat most of the, the season and I got sent to the minors and I was pretty down on myself. It was a low point in my career. And Barry was thrilled beyond thrilled to have me on his team. Um, you know, we would, we would lose a game three, two, four, two, four, three. Um, I'd go into his office after the game and say, Barry, you know, that third goal, you know, I should have had it. And I'm sorry. Um, I cost us the game. He would tell me, he goes, don't you ever apologize to me. You're out there working your butt off every night, um, doing the best you can. Don't you ever apologize to me for, for allowing a goal. And I was like, Whoa, where, where has this been my whole career? You know, I've, I've been in Toronto where they're pointing fingers every night. Um, and now this coach is excusing me for a goal that I think I should have stopped or had something a better played it better. Um, he, had so much confidence into me and expressed it on a daily basis, uh, treated me like an adult. Um, you know, I just, I'd never experienced that much confidence from a coach before. And I responded and I would go through the wall for him. You know, when you, when you mention that the coach is not allowing you to shoulder blame for, you know, a, a shot that you think you might have misplayed. It reminds me of a guy that I worked with in my hockey broadcasting career, uh, who was a true mentor to me and had been around. He's forgot way more about the game than I'll ever have known. But he always he he refused to use the phrase after a play or after a goal. Ah, uh, the goalie wants that one back, or probably wants that one back, because he says they want all of them back. As a mm -hmm. goaltender, that's kind of the thing, isn't it, Alan? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you you. You always think you could have done something differently. And, uh, you know, you had a chance on everything. I can't help but think when we're talking about that Calder Cup in 92, Barry Melrose as your coach. As a Leafs fan now, I got to, because the year later was one of the greatest in, in Leafs history and really energized the fan base again when Barry was coaching the Los Angeles Kings. And I, listen, nobody's going to forget that first round, Clark, McSorley, but at the same time, it was almost Burns and Melrose behind the bench. Now, where would your allegiance have been, Alan? <laughs> um. So even though Barry was such a great coach, if Bernsey had gotten a lick or two in on him, you wouldn't have been, you know. Exactly. <laughs> when we talk about coaches, obviously you you had a ton uh, while you were in Toronto. And and one of them, of course, is, is another guy whose name always elicits a story or people try to get another story about him. What was John Brophy like? John was uh, a different cat. Um, he definitely... Loved the game. He was intense. Um, he had a minor league mentality. Um, he would do things. So I had him in the minors too when I was in, in uh, St. Catharines. And, and uh, a lot of the antics that happened there um, 
were really noteworthy. Um, you know, we played one night and lost the next day at practice. Uh, he put a chair at center ice. He had me sit in the chair at center ice and the players all had to skate. And he said, <clears throat> guys, you watched him work last night. So he's going to sit here and watch you work tonight. So we, they had an entire practice with me sitting in a chair at center ice. Um, you know, stuff like that. Um, one night after a game that we lost, um, we got in the dressing room. Our families are all waiting for us. He said, take your game jerseys off, put your practice jerseys on. We're going back on the ice. So we had another hour and a half practice after the game at 1130 at night. Um, you know, stuff like that, stuff that you can't get away with in the NHL. Um, but he used to do in the minors. You know, John was intense. Uh, I respected John. Um, you know, he just wanted to win in the worst way and do would do anything or whatever he could to 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 win. Detroit, of course, wasn't your last stop in the National Hockey League. You had that proverbial cup of coffee with the Dallas Stars. How did that come to pass? Um, my agent uh, was talking with um, the general manager at the time of Dallas, and they had Moog and Wachluck both injured at the time. And so Manny Fernandez was their goaltender from the minors, from the Kalamazoo, and he just – wasn't playing well enough and they needed wins, you know, they needed wins to move on. Um, and they had a new coach in um, Hitchcock and um, I was leading the league in, in Orlando with wins and uh, pretty, I think pretty low on the goals against average too, but we were, we were, we, we had a great team and we were playing really well. And I, I had the, the number one wins in the league. So, uh, my agent talked to the general manager and they said, you know, Alan's a winner. He's, he's, he's proven it throughout his career. He said, you know, why don't you sign him to come in and, and help your team get some wins? So uh, I got the call uh, and uh, flew to Vancouver, uh, met the team there, and then uh, proceeded to win the first three games I played. Um and uh, I think I tied the fourth. I'm not. I'm not quite sure now anymore. But uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it was an interesting situation. I was extremely nervous, extremely uptight. Um, you know, trying to getting back in the NHL, playing again. But the nice thing was, I'd had a lot of success that year, and, and I was pretty confident in my abilities. Uh, I didn't know if I still had it for the NHL. Um, but the funny thing was, I found it easier in the NHL. The defense is better. You know. Um, you know, in, in the minors, it's a lot more run and gun. Uh, if you've got a good defenseman in the minors, you're bringing them up to the NHL. So definitely the, um, the team defense was a lot better in the NHL. Didn't you have some pretty sweet, uh, cash per win deal worked out in that contract too? <laughs> yeah, I think I had, uh, 2,500 per point. So I won the, as I say, I won the first three or four games. And uh, so that kind of added up quite quickly, about $5,000 a win. So yeah, it was a nice bonus on top of uh, my uh, prorated salary at the time. Absolutely. And not, not bad compared to probably Orlando Solar Bears money at the time. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> How close was, was there a possibility of Anaheim at one point or am I getting that mixed up? No, I was, uh, after I finished with uh, Detroit, um, I played two years for Detroit, 
And after the second year, my contract was over. I was a free agent. I signed as a free agent with the Anaheim Mighty Ducks in their inaugural season. Funny story. Interesting story. Um, <laughs> Anaheim Mighty Ducks, I go to training camp. Um, I don't know how many goaltenders we have or whatever, but they've, they've drafted through the expansion draft, Ron Tugnut and Guillaume Bear. That's their two goaltenders that they're going to go with. Well, I come into camp, have a great camp, played really, really well. So camp's over. They're, they're getting prepared for the first game. Uh, I'm the number three guy in the still sitting in, in Anaheim. They call me in the office, the general manager, the, the uh, assistant coaches, the coach. They said, Alan, you by far were the best goaltender in camp, by far. You surprised us. We didn't know you were that good. But we're going to send you the minors because <laughs> we drafted the other two guys. Um, you are a groin pull from being back up here. So go down, play well, stay sharp. We expect you to be back up. And they said, we're, we realize now we've got solid goaltending. If we're going to make a move and fill in some other areas of our team, we're going to probably trade a goaltender. So be prepared. Well, I went down to San Diego. I was the all-star goalie for the next two years in San Diego. Um, never got a sniff to go to Anaheim. Never got called up once. My playing partner, um, Mikhail Stalenkov, got called up every week um, to back up 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 there. So I never got a sniff. Um, so at the end of the two years, Anaheim offered me a new two or three year deal. And I told them, no, thank you. I'm going to sign with the Orlando Solar Bears of the International Hockey League. Um, I'm done. So funny situation where, you know, you're supposedly a groin pull from being back up and you never get a, a single game or call up. So that was no the question. situation. No question. Professionally. Uh, incredibly disappointing. I can't help but think, though, there are a lot worse places to be, period, play hockey than San Diego. Come on. Yeah. Let's tell you, every day you walk outside, you can either wear shorts or long pants. It didn't matter. You know, you're looking at 70 degrees, no humidity. It was it was gorgeous. It's it's real funny now that I think of it, Alan, how you ended up becoming a Floridian instead of coming back to Hamilton or somewhere in southern Ontario after all of this. Yes, I got got a taste of the uh, the nice weather in San Diego and decided the only place I'm going is either Orlando or Houston. <laughs> smart, smart man. See that those that academic career still paying dividends for you by the sounds of things. I, you mentioned back when we were talking about the Brantford Alexanders, remembering Al McKinnis, who of course played for the Kitchener Rangers, my hometown team, and as I was growing up. Al McKinnis had the most feared shot anywhere. Was there a guy who shot maybe besides McKinnis, if he's the first one that comes to mind, but whose shot you feared when you played goal? Well, guy I feared the most was on my team, Al, Al, Al Iafrady. <laughs> <laughs> Let me guess, because you never knew where the shot was going to go. Well, he, he, he could fire it pretty hard. And, and, and to his credit, Al kept it low. He didn't headhunt. Um, so, uh, but uh, another one that I, that used to scare the dickens out of me was uh, 
uh, Russ Cortnell, he would take slap shots from the slot uh, high at my head and stuff like that. So, you know, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was a battle. <laughs> we sometimes yeah. forget that. No res- you got no respect sometimes, you know, hey, no respect, <laughs> you know what I mean? No respect. As a goaltender, though, it's true. It's every day. And then in practice, you have to face your own shooters. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah. Funny it story. Was, Al, I practice was, was tough. Yeah. <laughs> I afraid son played for us in Kitchener for a little while. Max. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Interesting character, too. Only, Al only came by the one time. But uh, but yeah, Max was was quite the character as a player wow. in this league. Wow. Yeah. When it comes to nicknames, every hockey player has one. Beast makes sense, given your last name. How on earth did you get the name Ernie? And why didn't you like it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, when I was 19 and I looked about 14, I walked into the rink one day with my gold rim glasses on. And walked in, and uh, Bill Stewart took a look at one look at me and said, "It's Ernie Douglas from My Three Sons." <laughs> <laughs> so Ernie stuck for about six months or so. It didn't last very long. But then when Wendell and Russ and and, and uh, Todd Gill and uh, Mark Osborne came along, they they revamped it and, and called the Ernie for quite some time. So um, yeah, I I, I feigned. I feigned that I was upset about it. It didn't bother me that much. And so Ernie, King Clancy for a moment or two, Beast. Yeah. He had your share of nicknames going through the league. Yeah, yeah, Beastie, you know, yeah. Bestie, yeah. How how did you know uh, that it was time to hang him up? Um, as I said, I wasn't sleeping. Um, the stress was getting to me. It was, it was getting to be too much. Um, I, I I just couldn't. I couldn't play at the at the level I expected of myself. Um, long story, long career. Um, I injured my ankle during the summer after my first season. Um, I playing slow pitch baseball. I twisted my ankle and stretched the ligaments in that ankle. Didn't know I had, but from that point on. The skate never felt comfortable. Um, to this day, if I wear rollerblades, it's the same situation. Um, and I come to realize once I ended up having surgery on it, that that's what had happened. I had stretched the ligaments and it threw off the balance point. And I wanted, and later on in my career, I tore those ligaments and ended up having to have them operated on. But um, come to realize that's what happened and it caused problems from that point on. And I had to overcome them throughout my career. Um, By the time I got to be 35, I just couldn't fight it anymore. I just, I just could not play at the level I expected of myself. And I wasn't willing to do what it took to get there. How much pain or at least discomfort were you playing through then? As a butterfly goaltender, up, down, when you're pushing off, it couldn't have been easy. Well, it, it wasn't so much pain. It was just a balance situation. My ankle wanted to roll over, and it was hard to get on the inside edge so that when you played butterfly, and that's I think that's why I ended up injuring my knee, because I had to lean so far on the inside 
of the skate to try and get that edge and keep my ankle from rolling over that I ended up torquing the inside of my knee twice. So, um, you know, I look back and go, you know, things could have been different, but, you know, I did, did the best I could. You know, looking back, when we look at pictures of goaltenders from your era, and again, I'll just refer to the guy over my right mm -hmm. shoulder here and Mike Palmatier, and we see the equipment that you wore, and then we see what goaltenders look like today. I mean, come on, Alan, you had 10 more years and you easy with all that gear on. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I stayed pretty streamlined throughout my career and I, and I wore the deer hair and leather pads and, you know, um, it's what I grew up with and it's what I played with. Uh, you know, I tried when I got to Dallas, I tried Andy Moog's lightweight Vaughn pads and, and they were great, but it just wasn't the same. It just, it, it different feel. I'd have to, I'd have to play quite some, you know, one practice wasn't enough to say, Hey, you know, I really like these, but so much lighter and, and uh, you know, it could move a lot quicker. And it was, uh, it was interesting, but yeah, guys today, I mean, not only the equipment that they're all six foot four to six foot six, you know, um, I would never have gotten a sniff nowadays at five foot seven. There's no way I would have been, been looked at as a possible NHL goaltender. You know, you just you just reminded me of something else. Earlier today, I told a colleague that I was going to be sitting down with you tonight for this chat. And he said, Alan Bester, he and Darren Pang, two smallest goalies I knew. And you know what? It just speaks to the completely bygone era, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, Darren and I were friends in, in junior. And he played for the Ottawa 67s. And when Bradford used to play the Ottawa 67s, I would stand at center ice and tell Darren, hey, come over here. Stand beside me. He goes, what? I said, come over here and stand beside me. I said, you make me look tall. The scouts are here. <laughs> <laughs> now that's a friend. That's a friend right there. Because <laughs> he was 5'5 five, five and I was 5'7. I could eat peanuts off his head. <laughs> <laughs> when you were talking about the ankle injury, I, I couldn't help but think, I hope it hasn't, or it doesn't appear to have anyway, uh, affected the golf game a whole lot. You're still getting in regular rounds these days, aren't you? Yeah, I played twice this past weekend. I play every Saturday and Sunday. I'm first out, and I play in about, well, if I play by myself, I'm done in about an hour and a half, maybe an hour and 20. Uh, normally, these days, I'm playing with two or three people, and uh, four of us played in three hours yesterday morning, so we, we go out first and play and get it done and get home, and then we get the rest of the day to ourselves, so. But if I had to play at 10 or 11 o'clock in five or six hour round, that would, I wouldn't play. You know, I, I enjoy getting out, playing, getting it done and getting home. How did you end up? I mean, geographically, it makes sense. And we've talked about you now being a Floridian. How did you end up doing the work that you do today? Well, that was, uh, that was interesting too. Um, I, uh, announced my retirement and, um, I called a sales manager with the Holiday Inn to let him know that I was announcing my retirement. I, I knew him because they were a sponsor of the team and they had looked after my sister when she came into town with a suite, a poolside suite, and they'd taken care of her pretty good. So I called him to let him know I was retiring. Well, he wasn't there, his replacement was there and her and I talked for a minute and she said, well, what are you doing now? I said, well, I've got 
resume out to Disney and Universal. Um, I don't have a college education. I never ended up going back to school. Um, so I'm hoping I can get into sales and move on from there. She said, well, why don't you put your resume in here? We just fired our um, Smurf sales manager, which is sports, military, education, religious, fraternal um, sales manager, handles all the non-corporate, non-association groups. Um, as I like to say, the cheap and cheerful. Um, <laughs> so we have an opening here. Why don't you put your resume in? So I sent the, the director of sales a resume and called him at least four times to follow up and he said after the third call, he'd already decided he was going to hire me. So um, I come in for a team interview and I'm there for a team interview. And, and uh, the director of sales is saying, you know, Alan's never been in sales or, or in the hotel industry. So don't ask him any technical questions. So first thing, the general manager asked me a technical question right off the bat. So I answered it best I could. And uh, so he after that few questions I talked and everything. Um, he said, "Can you go sit out in the lobby for a second, or sit out in the in the um, the entrance way, and uh, we're going to talk about it, and I'll come back out and see you." So I walk out of there, and about thirty seconds after I walk out, the room erupts in laughter. I'm like, "Hmm, what's that all about?" Hmm. So he comes out and he says, "Oh, Alan, we're going to offer you the job as sales manager for the Holiday Inn International Drive." I said, great. I said, why did the roof break out the laughter after I left? He said, well, when I told them I was going to hire you, I, I, I said, what do you guys think? And they said, no way. The guy's a dumb jock. He's never been in the hotel industry. He's got no personality. He's, he's you know, what are you thinking? And then they said, no, no, he's great. You know, so they all <laughs> laughed and everything. So um, that's that's how I started, you know, and, and five years later, I went to Marriott. Seven years after that, I went to Hilton, and I'm coming up on my tenth year with Hilton now. It's it's pretty incredible, and that's that's a career in and of itself. I mean, as you already talked about, retiring at 35, 35 pardon me, pretty young. So you had to figure out something, but it's almost no, it is. It's two different professional lives. I know you're not, especially with your interest in golf all that connected to hockey much at all anymore. Do you miss it? Do you think back on it and think about, you know, that completely different chapter of your life? No, I actually, it, 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 that chapter's closed, you know, um, you know, occasionally people bring me back to it, you know, you know, I, I run into a Canadian or um, I, I go to the golf store and the guy's a huge fan and, and you know, we start talking hockey and, it's strange that that was a previous life to me. You know, I, I was, did the best I could at it, but you know, for the past 25 years, I've been a senior sales manager for, for a hotel industry. And, and that kind of um, is what I am now, you know, and, and as a great wife and we have a great life and love golfing and looking forward to a second retirement. <laughs> not everybody gets those you know <laughs> actually i tease my father who was also in education we touched on that earlier maybe you could have been a teacher but i joke that he retired three times because the first two times he retired they called him back and they found something else to do and he just had to say yes and 
So there were a couple of different little stutter steps to his retirement for sure. But if you if you were to give a piece of advice, and I'm going to ask you for it, I don't know if you ever get asked, certainly from the hockey side, but this being you know a, a podcast that's geared towards the Ontario Hockey League, junior hockey in Canada, what advice would you give to a 16, 17-year-old hockey player today based on anything that you learned through your first career? Give it your all. I mean invest your energy into performing every night. Um, don't take a night off. Um, you never know when the opportunity is going to arise. You never know who's watching. Um, as I said, I, I fell into this career. I just happened to, you know, the, the dominoes fell, the, the things lined up. I ended up having a great career which wasn't planned out. It wasn't scripted. Um, you know, someone saw me at this tournament and said, Hey, you know, he's pretty good. Let's just keep an eye on him. And then by playing every night at doing your best of your ability, don't take a night off because you just never know who's watching and never know when that opportunity is going to rise. And when you get that opportunity, take full effect, take full advantage of it. Things worked out pretty okay for you, huh? I'm pretty happy with it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I wish I wish I'd played better when I was in Toronto, and and after my first year, I wish I really regret about the the ankle injury, which, um, you know, case sarasara, whatever, you know, whatever happened. But uh, you know, I, I always wonder what would have happened if if I hadn't, if that hadn't happened, because. I struggled from that point on and, and had a lot of skate issues and never knew what it was. Um, you know, I was always trying to tie my skates a different way to get the feel back because it always felt, it always felt wrong. The left one felt great. The right one always felt wrong. It was always, it was always something. So I would try different ways of lacing it up and then I would get skate bite and, yeah, and then I had bone spurs and, you know, it just, it's too bad. And, and, having the anxiety didn't help matters. It made it even worse. So it was, it was uh, tough sledding for a few years there in Toronto. How did you ultimately figure out that ankle issue? Um, when I had two surgeries on it and they had told me I had stretched it. Um, and the second surgery was to repair it and create a new bridge. So that the, the tendons didn't pop over my ankle bone. Um, I realized at that point, going back to when I started having the issues was right after that summer I played slow pitch baseball. And so I remember, I remember the instant, the, the incident vividly when I did it, um, to this day, I know exactly how it happened and what happened, um. I was surprised I didn't break my ankle at the time, um, but you know I've had I've had two pretty major injuries and both came from slow pitch baseball. <laughs> That'll teach you exactly. What exactly. what was it that that happened? Um, you're not allowed to slide, and I was trying to stretch it to second base, so I ran full out to second base, stepped on the base, and tried to stop. My ankle twisted. And all my weight went over, and then I popped over it. So it, it 
yeah, I'd stretch the ligaments in that ankle by twisting the ankle pretty severely. Um, and then the other one was I dislocated my shoulder playing slow pitch baseball when Dale DeGray bailed into me. Come on, Digger? Yeah, Digger DeGray. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll be darned. Still the general manager and a damn fine one in Owen yes, Sound. Yes, yes, he is. Yes, he is. <laughs> That's a name I did not expect to hear. And of all places, on the diamond. Yep, yep. Wild, just wild. So did you re-injure the ankle? Is that what led to the surgery? Uh, no, um, I ended up getting a bone spur on the ankle bone itself. So they went in and shaved the, the ankle bone. And I think that caused a weakness in the what's called a retinaculum. It's the, the piece of skin that runs across your ankle bone to keep the tendons from popping over your ankle bone. Um, and then just playing in my final year, no, in the second year in, in, uh, in uh, Orlando, I felt a tear. And what happened is the, the retinaculum tore and the tendons started popping over my ankle bone. They um, they did MRI and found that there was an issue. Plus, there was a four inch split in one of the tendons because it was rubbing on the ankle bone so much. So, um, yeah, it was a. They took a piece of my Achilles and threaded it through the ankle bone and sewed it to itself to create a bridge so that the, the tendons didn't pop back over in my ankle bone all the time. So, yeah, it was uh, it was it was about four months of uh, being in a cast. You know, Alan, I think a lot of us would be quite content going through life not knowing what a retinaculum is. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny when you go through these things, the language and the verbiage that you pick up. Well, I also had shoulder surgery where they they um, um, they took off the distal end of my clavicle and did a, a rotator cuff work on it. So, um, yeah, that. I got to know both those surgeries pretty well. Chromial decompression. They did an acromial decompression. That's what they did. Of course they did. I'll yeah. Google that later, but I'm going to take your word for it, <laughs> Dr. Bester. <laughs> Listen, I've taken enough of your time. This has been a, a whole lot of fun. And, and thank you for being so gracious with your time. I appreciate you joining me on the show. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hi, I'm Logan Anderson, host of the Say the Damn Score podcast. On my show, I deep dive into the sports broadcasting business by, you guessed it, talking to sportscasters. The show has featured big names like Bob Costas, Kenny Albert, and Vern Lundquist, as well as many up-and-coming broadcasters who you may not know yet, but you will know soon. Whether you're looking for professional development as a sportscaster, different career paths, or if you just want to be entertained by hearing some of the best storytellers in the world tell their own stories, this podcast is for you. You can subscribe to the podcast on all major podcast platforms, or you can visit our website, saythedamnscore.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.